0: Is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land? In this episode, author and activist Mia Birdsong is joined by CIIS Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Rachel Bryant, for a conversation on reclaiming family, friendship, and communities. Sharing insights from her book, How We Show Up, Mia highlights how we can return to our inherent connectedness to find strength, safety, and support in vulnerability and generosity, in asking for help, and in being accountable. This episode was recorded during a live online event on April 22nd, 2021. A transcript is available at CISpod.com. To find out more about CIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at programs.
1: Hello, everyone. I don't know about you, but I have been waiting to show up to have this conversation with you, Mia Birdsong, about Mm. how we show up. And I have to say that when I first received this book, it was like mana from heaven. Um, It felt like it was very timely, and yet you wrote this book before the pandemic. And it is so needed in this time. So could you start by telling us a little bit about why you wrote this book and who you wrote it for?
2: So um, I did that thing that Toni Morrison said to us, which is, would like, you know, write the book that you need. Um, And this was very much a book that was born out of questions I was asking myself about how to, in in a context, in a culture... That emphasizes insularity, um, independence, um, that 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 tells us that our value comes from productivity and that we are in competition with each other. I wanted to understand how to think about what it means to be in community, what it means to um, re, imagine friendship for myself, um, what it means to build family, all of those things. Um, I wanted to understand how to do that in ways that didn't, um, reinforce or, uh, replicate, um, these systems of like independence and insularity and competition.
0: Yeah,
1: I think, like I said, this is a very timely conversation, as many of us are in isolation, one of the maybe silver linings or gifts of these times, these very uncertain times, is that we are all questioning what is most important to us. And I don't know about you, but I'm coming up with, it's my folks, it's my relationships yeah. that are mattering the most, right? Whether it's through a phone call or some sort of a drive by connection or whatever that is. yeah, I think we've essentialized that, right? but why is it so hard for us to admit that we need one another? Why did it?
2: I know because on the one hand, right? Like our need, the fact that we need each other is because we're human, right? Human beings are social animals. Um, It is in our, in the way our brains are wired. It's in our DNA. It's in our biology. Like it is a real thing that we actually need each other. In fact, um, There are sociologists who think about relationship who would argue that the way that, you know, that Maslow's pyramid of needs, um, which has, you know, food, shelter, water on the bottom, that actually connection should be on the bottom. Because as humans, we actually can't get any of those things without each other. When you're when you're born, you can't do anything for yourself. You need people to care about you in order to make sure that you get fed and, you know, are taken care of. Um, Even, you know, as adults, like, you know, I'm in a house, I did not build this house, (laughs) somebody else built it. Um, We're not, you know, alligators, we don't get born and then just go about our business (laughs) and take care of ourselves, we really need each other. And our need for you know, it's not just about kind of establishing, um, or getting the things we need to like literally, you know, materially survive, but it also is that we actually need love, like love's a thing that human beings need. Um, we need care, we need to belong. So everything right about what we are as humans tells us this, but culture is really powerful. And, um, you know, America, and this is true of lots of Western cultures, um, but I know America, so I talk about America. And America has um, a very old history that tells us that um, in order for us to be valuable, we have to be productive. It tells us that the um, model, right, the model we should all be aiming for when it comes to success is a very insular nuclear family, um, it tells us that asking for or accepting help and support is weakness, right? That you only do those things if there's something wrong. So we have, if you, you know, grow up in this country, or if you come here and you kind of adopt, um, American culture, you are told that your need for other people is, um, as a kind of weakness. And, I mean, it is astonishing to me on some level how powerful that culture is and how um how much we internalize all of that. But that's what I wanted to really kind of unpack for myself um, in the book. And I'm really glad that other people are finding it useful to unpack those things as well.
1: Yeah, Mia, and what you're really unpacking is this American dream, this this idea of an American dream that we've all been sold. And you do that so beautifully through all of these stories that you've collected. It's like you went back to the future. You reclaim this ancient technology of simple storytelling and connecting. Totally. Um, and it's so beautiful. Um, each, and we'll maybe talk about some of the, um, the stories, but, you know, there's this, this conversation happening in the academy right now and in the community too, maybe on some level about decolonizing. De- mm-hmm. In this and decolonizing that. And I thought about your book and I'm like, it's not only you're talking about decolonizing um, our lifestyles, um, it's also showing how we decolonize research. And I just wondered mm-hmm. after that projection, if you actually identify with those terms like decolonizing.
2: I mean, mm-hmm. I think I do um, because I find them useful to kind of understand the practice of excavating, right, the ways in which I've internalized white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy. Um, And I think it's it it is useful to understand that, you know, colonization is an act of like um, putting something in a place that is not from like not of it. Right. And I feel like the idea of independence like has colonized humans, human beings. So part of us excavating that from our hearts and our minds and our, and the way we interact with each other is a kind of decolonization. So um, I think if that's useful for people, I think that's a great way to think about it. I also don't think it's the only way to think about it. Um, I think it can also be about not so much what you're undoing, but what you're um, reclaiming or remembering. Um, And, I know you asked me a question about research, but, but I do, but I only say this first Um, because this is inter interdependence and connection is who we are as human beings. I feel like the, the process that we are engaging in um, is really a remembering, right? We all, because it is part of who we are um, genetically, it's also part of who we are historically, all of us, and we may have to go real far back to find this, but all of us come from people who lived interdependent lives Mm -hmm. and it may not be useful to go back and find out who those people were and try to like reclaim like a particular culture, you know, like, on my mom's side, um, there's the, like, we're part Irish, right? Like I'm not going to go back to Ireland and like try to start, you know, kind of reclaiming Irish culture. Like that's, that's not something that's going to resonate with me. But I do think that knowing that we, that that is true of all of us, right? All of us have come from people who lived interdependent lives. Um, I think is just, uh, I find it reassuring because it means that I'm like, oh, I don't really have to make something up. I just have to like, listen to what my, my history, like what, what my, myself, right? Like what is what I'm like, I'm longing for. And all of us want to belong. We all want to be loved and cared for. Um, We all want to be part of something where we feel like we can make home. And um, knowing that I feel like makes the journey forward into something that feels very different from what I grew up with um, or what we grew up with, right? Like it makes it a little less scary. Now, you asked me about research. (laughs) Um, So I am so grateful that I learned a fairly, like a while ago, that if I wanted to find answers to like how to be in the world, that the people whose practices, um, cultural ways, um, were going to resonate and point me toward the future that I wanted. We're not, you know, dead white men. <laughs> we're not academics. We're not, you know, um, pundits but were people who were living um, the, in into the future that I want. And in my experience, those people are usually um, marginalized in some way. So it's black folks, it's queer folks, it's unhoused people, it's sex workers, um, people with disabilities, because the system we have up of success, right? The way that you access resources, the way that you... Um, are told you're doing a good job the way that you're supposed to achieve success and happiness um that system is for <laughs> heterosexual able bodied you know resourced white men that's who built it that's who it works best for or you know best meaning like they have they they can uh most easily navigate it people for whom that system um either like creates barriers or just outright rejects them do something else and that something else um like the rejection, and I don't want to romanticize like how shitty it is to experience oppression and experience like not being able to access resources that you need. But there's a way in which when we can't access those resources through um, the institutions and systems that our society holds up for us, we figure out how to do it in other ways. And that so often involves um, us being in community with each other. Um, it involves us relying on each other um, to get those things. And I feel like I, so I was like, I knew where to look generally, like in what direction to look for the answers I was looking for. Um, you know, probably 80% of the people, um, the stories that I tell in the book are like queer black women. Um, there's unhoused people, there's sex workers, there are people with disabilities. Um, yeah, that's where I feel like I find the most life affirming, um, beautiful like vision of what it is that like the future that we need
1: Mm, i really resonate with that i believe that in reading your book i understand more deeply that what i've seen on like stickers and people say like the future is queer like i really could imagine it through all of the stories and I also really appreciated that you gave big props, big props to black queer women who are often very much on the fringe of our society and have so much creativity, so much resilience, so much like just pop, you know, like totally make culture like and um and I and just- really let me also say and like part of
2: what I've found is like black queer women are really doing the work. Yeah. Right. They're like, this thing does not work for us, so we need to do something else. And like we and this is, you know, this is the circles. of Again, I don't want to romanticize or generalize, but but I'm the places where I'm finding people really doing the work of of questioning the ways in which they have they're practicing, you know, whatever. They're like, am I replicating white supremacy here? Am I replicating patriarchy? Am I replicating um, the like like punishment and, like, the carceral state in in the ways that I'm being in relationship or doing my work or parenting or whatever it is. And that, um, the rigorousness of the questioning is also a thing that I feel like I've learned from Black queer women, um, mm-hmm. is that it's not just enough. And, you know, like, I'm also, because I'm an activist, I'm largely, like, interacting with activists and organizers. But that is not just enough to be, you know, it's not just a, like, we're rejecting the patriarchy and white supremacy and we're creating some utopia over here. It's like, we're doing this practice with each other and we have to do our work on our own shit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I wonder how you dropped into your work because there was a part, uh, I don't remember the exact quote in the book where you say like you give the, the props to black queer women and you tell so many like diverse stories that help us imagine the future. But are you also warn like, don't bust in here uh, occupying and a culprit, yes, like totally.
2: A <laughs> I'm like, there's a, there's a fine line. Yeah, like, like the book is not meant to be, um, it's not a how-to, right? It's not meant to be a blueprint. It really is one, um, to affirm the, just the, um, the, the possibility, right? Like to affirm that the things that I think many of us are looking for are already being practiced someplace. Um, so you really don't have to just like, Completely make it up. But it is also to be like, well, to to notice that like, oh, there's a way there's a way in which I can build family for myself that does not look like this thing that I grew up with or this thing that I was taught or the or the fact that I'm not doing it, it does not make me a failure. But it's not about replicating any of the, the structures or, um, practices or, um, you know, family friendship or community structures that, that I show in the book, because it really isn't a how to book. Part of it is like, there are a million ways to do all of these things. And I just wanted to give people, um, a handful of examples, like to serve as inspiration and validation, right. Inspiration that like you can do something else and validation for what so many of us feel, which is that this thing, right that we've been told is going to make us happy is like misery inducing. So it's, it's like, okay, something else exists. Let me figure this out for myself. And I think, you know, especially as someone who, like lineage is really important. So part of it for me was about um, recognizing that my, you know, none of these ideas just like sprang fully formed from my head. Um, I learned from a lot of people and I really wanted to um, pay homage to and like recognize the places where I learned. And so much of that was from black folks and so much of that was from queer folks. So it was really important to me that um, that I just like make that clear and make clear that like you don't get to like, you know, wrap your friendship in a rainbow flag and like be done. Like that part of this for me is solidarity work, right? It's like, if you're, if you're learning from communities that are not yours, then you need to be protecting those communities because those things, right. That they are, that they're teaching us are sacred and we need to treat them that way. Um, So it means like, okay, like, yes, I can learn about like the queering of friendship, but then like I need to show up for people um, who are, who are like asexual or aromantic, right? Like um, queer platonic, platonic queer friendships are one of the things I talk about in the book. And that thinking came from asexual and aromantic folks. And those folks like like the visibility of asexual and aromantic folks is like non-existent. And when it is, it is always some kind of like, you know, Like they end up being like the serial killer in the, in the show or whatever. So part of it for me is about how am I making sure that the, the groups of people who are giving me this gift that, you know, that they didn't, they didn't like create for me. Right. Like to be clear, like folks are doing these things for themselves, but in doing so, it allows me to expand how I think about myself. Um, And I feel like I have a responsibility then to those folks.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm Let's talk about friendship. I I love when you talk about like just the value of friendship is really the highest value that we have in a relationship. And yet you talk about how somehow maybe the word friend has lost its meaning. And then you take the readers in a new place, which is around queering friendship. So Mm -hmm. I would like to talk about friendship with you and like how that queering of friendship uh, you talk about as being liberatory and truth finding for you as you engaged in. Yeah, yeah,
2: that. Was I cool. think, I think the main thing is is that that I've like I've come to understand that like each of my friendships um, can have its own culture, right? That like friends are not one thing. Um, you know, I think in our in our culture we have like your sexual romantic relationship is meant to be at the top of the hierarchy. And like that, that it's a very, very like pointed mountain, right? Like it's way up here and then everything else is below that. And, um, you know, and you might have your best friends and then like, you know, people you hang with or your work acquaintances or whatever. Um, but, but that there's not, like part of it is that we try to categorize um, everything and assume that like this label is going to going to define what the thing means. And I think part of what I learned over the course of researching and writing the book is that each of my friendships can have its own culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's something about at least thinking about it, if not actually being explicit and having a conversation about it with the, the person you're in relationship with Um that can create, um, a shared sense of like expectation that can, um, open up, um, so much room for, um, realms of support that you didn't have for intimacy, for, um, for deeper knowing, um, with folks and, just and that's just from like being like, okay, the friendship label like doesn't really mean anything. So what is what is the culture of this relationship? And that the spectrum of friendship, right, can be vast. Um a queer platonic relationship is one that is, you know, as I understand it, is like it's not a sexual romantic relationship, but it's also not what our culture would like kind of normally define as like just a friend. Um it is uh like there are people who have queer platonic life partners, right? So there's, there's people, they're not sleeping with them. Sometimes they um, are sleeping with other people or have romantic relationships with other people, but they have this uh, a friendship that feels like um, like a life partnership. Um, and I just think that that's beautiful. And again, part of it is not that you're going to learn about that and then be like, oh, I need to go find one of these. But just that it, it, it pulls away um, a limitation, for what we think of like what friendship is and allows us to just like expand our understanding of what's possible when it comes to our friendships
1: yes one of the examples of that in the book that really struck me and i'd love to hear which stories struck you but it was your own story with your friend who um had um diabetes mm-hmm. and- talk about like at a certain point you had to make the decision that you needed to get all up in her business with her permission yes you could expand this idea of friendship and really be someone who would be there as a a support for her more than just like the good times but like in the critical times that she might need a friend like you i'd love to hear you yeah so um
2: that's that's the story about me and Mariah. And I love this woman so much. Um, she's family, she's auntie to my daughter. Um, and I don't remember what it was that was I think part of it actually honestly was that she was becoming more comfortable with she's a deeply independent person. Um, she's doesn't have a partner, she lives by herself. Um, she has been managing her diabetes like since she was like 10. Um, and The so part of it was that she was becoming, she was doing the work of of recognizing her interdependence with people and what it meant to um, allow people to see more of her. And I just had this realization that, like in our culture, um, because there is such a deep expectation that you're going to get married. that if you have a medical condition, they're like your partner, you know, whoever you marry is the person who's going to like be the person who you talk to about that stuff or manages it for you. And I have so many friends who do not have partners, right. And probably never will, um, who are in their like thirties and forties and fifties. And I was like, Oh, what, what does that look like? What, What happens if you have a thing that you really need people to, um, be aware of to understand, right. Like to know how to help you manage if you need it. Um, what happens to you if you don't have a spouse for that? So, you know, I was, I spent a lot of time like debating whether or not I was going to bring it up with her. Um, partly cause we'd never talked about it, like in terms of like any kind of support I could offer. Um, and she's, and like I said, she's a very independent person, but I was like, I'm gonna bring it up. And if she doesn't want me to be up in her business, she can tell me. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was like, "Hey, <laughs> like is there stuff that that like it would be useful for uh, your like me to know so that, you know, if you end up in the hospital, like what do the doctors need to know about your diabetes, right? Like stuff like that. Like if I'm with you and you something happens, like as there like what do I get? Like do you need some juice? Do I give you a shot? Like how do I know what to do?" And she was like, "No one has ever asked me that before." And I'm like, I know it's not because, you know, her friends are assholes. It's just because we do not have um, a model of what it looks like to be in our friends' lives that way. And this was very much because I have been thinking about this. So we had a whole conversation where she, like, she made a spreadsheet with all of her doctors and her information about, you know, her thing. I have... um, you know, she lives alone. Um, so if her blood sugar gets too low, like I have an app on my phone um, and an alarm will go off and um, let me know that her blood sugar is too low so I can check in on her and make, you know, if I don't hear from her, then I go to her house and I know where the key is and I can go in and like give her a shot of insulin if I need to. And now it's not just me. Like there's a little group of us who she will text if like she's like, you know, my blood sugar is really low or Um, if she's just feeling, you know, funky or she needs to, something needs to happen. She'll text a a small group of us and, um, we just like, we know what to do. And it means that, you know, my phone is on all the time. I don't turn my phone off at night. Um, and I feel like we are like, I'm, I'm like, we're in each other's lives in this way that we weren't before. And it's like this, this, like, you know, we have these like webs of connection with each other. And it's like this other thread that got, um, strong between us. Um, I have another friend who, um, has a lot of, uh, like a bunch of health stuff going on. And, um, a few months ago asked, you know, they live alone pandemic times, like all the things, right. They asked if I would, they're like, I'm trying to get my nutrition together, um, because I need to have surgery in the next year. Would you cook for me? Uh And I know that it was, it was so hard. There was all kind of preamble before, like, it's okay if you say no, like all the things it was so hard for them to ask me to do that. Um, So first of all, I was like, that is some courageous shit right there. Like asking somebody um, to cook for you. Um, And I was like, yes, because I love cooking Mm -hmm. And it has turned into this thing. My husband and I both cook. We, it feels like this friend of mine is like part of our family when I'm making a meal, right. When I'm making a meal for, for, my husband and my kids and I'm making a meal for them at the same time. It's like, there's a part of my table that like extends, you know, outside my house. And I always, I'd always drive over and I drop it off on the porch and I send them a text that says like what it is. And they always like, you know, eventually once they eat it, they like send me a text back. Sometimes I have them pick out recipes and I'll cook whatever that is for them. Um, So like in both of these instances, there's this way in which there's so much courage required from both sides, right? To be up in each other's business. Yeah. And we like that has redefined my relationships with both of those people. Um and, you know, and 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 I'm telling you stories of that like are about my kind of, you know, my giving going in this direction. But let me tell you, I have had my crises during the pandemic and like it has come back to me um, from them, from other people. And that, you know, there's a there's a quote in the book um, from this woman, Retta Morris, who talks about the divine circle of giving and receiving and how we often think about, like, you know, the gift it is for somebody to receive, but we don't often think about the gift it is for someone to give. And that when we don't ask for help, right, or we don't accept help, we're interrupting that circle. Mm-hmm. And I think about how, like, like, me, you know, driving over to Mariah's house when um her blood sugar is low, which I have done like in the middle of the night in my pajamas, right? Me doing that, me cooking for this friend of mine is so restorative for me. Being in like that kind of intimate connection with these people who I love brings me like it's just life affirming right it brings me a sense of like grounding um and again it's like it strengthens that thread right that's between us and like i'm just so grateful that they allow me to like give to them in that way
1: mm-hmm. you know the other thing i was wondering is you actually mention a lot of people communities and organizations by name and how as a researcher and an author mm you get get their permission to do that.
2: because I thought yes. that was very profound. Like you name the people. So I, um, asked everyone, so I changed a lot of names in the book. Oh, um, okay. yeah. So, um, I asked, uh, yeah, totally. There's a part right, way in the beginning in the part that nobody reads in the book. Like I said, I, I say something about, <laughs> um, about changing people's names. Um, so I asked everybody, um, what they wanted me to do if they want me to use their real name or not. Um, people there are people who just said who said no and i gave i let them pick their pseudonym if they wanted to um there were folks who said yes and then i double checked with them to make sure um and then there was i think there was a couple of people who said yes and i was like they i was like i don't think they understand how public this is going to be i think i'm going to change it anyway um And I feel good about that. So, yeah, so I really I I checked in with folks. I had a really you know, I had a form that people filled out um, to give me their, you know, their pronouns, like all their kind of like the way that they identify themselves, like in terms of race and gender and all those things. Um, you know, I just wanted to like correctly um identify folks. And then I said, I was like, if you, I was like, if you do not answer this question about whether or not I can use your name, I'm just gonna not not use your name. I'm going to assume, I'm assuming that I will not say who you are unless you positively affirm that I should. Um, and then the organizations like, you know, there, I talk about, um, uh, homefulness in there, for example. Um, I talk about, um, people's kitchen collective, um, which is like, if y'all don't know people's kitchen collective, it is, One of the dopest organizations on the planet. You should know about it. You should give them your money. Um, Same with Homefulness. That community of folks is, has been around for like two decades in some iteration, has been doing the work. It is a group of unhoused and formerly unhoused people who they have built housing for themselves, they have a radio station, they have a cafe, um, they have multiple publications, they have books, um, they have a school, like they, like they really, um, in many ways, I'm like what they have figured out for themselves, um, deeply models, like the world that I want to live in. Um, it's amazing. And you, you should know, give them money too. All y'all in the audience should get homefulness and you should read the book and give all the organizations in the book your money.
1: They are pretty amazing. And they're in Oakland, our, yes. our town too, which is also great. You know, um, you interview all of these folks, and what you what all of those people working in those organizations are doing is flipping the stereotype about what we believe about poor people. And I know that some of your work has also been around economics. And I wonder if you could speak to why that's so important and maybe synthesize through the stories that um, you're telling in the book, like where our wealth really lies, which is what I think is the essence Mm. of this idea of family, friendship and community.
2: Yeah. So let's be clear. People need money. Yeah, they um, do. because we live inside of capitalism and our material and we are like we are people inside of a body and these bodies need things in order to live. So and inside of this context, we need money. So oh. I just want to be clear about that first. Yes. Um, part of our wealth lies in having money. Um, but I'm clear from so many of the like, you know boardrooms and elite spaces that I have been in that folks who have lots of wealth of of monetary wealth are some of the loneliest saddest self-hating people I have ever encountered and part of what that looks like is the extraction the i mean you know when it comes to billionaires like the the straight up thievery um the hoarding right that we see is because folks don't have not figured out like the thing that they're trying to fill like that hole in themselves with stuff and Wealth, Like they're trying they're like the American dream says that this is what's gonna make me happy. So they keep accumulating um, and haven't figured out that like what they need is like neighbors mm-hmm. and friends who they can like, you know, be messy and cry in front of or get a hug from. And folks go on these like excursions to like Bali or <laughs> Tibet or whatever, trying to find meaning. And I'm like, the meaning you're looking for is like your neighbor (laughs) is, is like, is live in your actual life. It's not about going someplace else. Um, and again, like, I don't want to be like all poor people like are, are like wealthy in terms of relationship and like, cause that's not true. Um, but I know, that the folks who I've encountered who have found, who have, who have, who have been forced to replace, um, who don't have financial um, capital, so they, have, they create social capital, right? Um, and are able to mitigate their experience of being poor through the relationships they have. Mm-hmm. so that they're, you know, being poor in community is very, very different from being poor in isolation. And when you have community, I mean, you know, like there's, there's folks in the book who talk about like, you know, being raised by like me, by like, you know, working class single moms and their moms and like all their, they're all their aunties who were just their mom's friends, like pooling you know food in order to like feed the kids like having these potlucks right so that like everybody gets fed or passing around um you know twenty dollars right like this person needs twenty dollars to like pay the light bill this person needs twenty dollars to um buy some underwear for their kid this kid person needs twenty dollars to get you know a book for something and just like the way in which the community, right? The relationship gets built around sharing and pooling resources. Mm-hmm. And homefulness is a really like a radical example of what that looks like. Um, the practices that they've built over time and the ways in which folks there um, are able to pool resources really allows for um, a lot of like building and creating of stuff. And they also work with people who have a lot of wealth and to get those folks to redistribute their, their money. Um so that's part of the work that they do, too. Um, I don't remember what your original question was at this point. <laughs> I just kind of rambling.
1: All right. You know that what you're saying resonates with me so deeply where you have lived in Oakland for more than 20 years. I grew up in Oakland and, in fact, deep East Oakland. Mm-hmm. And that code for poor people, black people, brown people and queer people are basically who were in my neighborhood's. And yet, despite, like, again, I really hear you. Let's not romanticize poverty. It, people need real things. I heard that and what you said, loud and clear. But there is this part where I didn't know I was poor because my wealth was my relationships. And not only my wealth, my safety. So the other yes. thing get projected onto, like, the hood. It is a dangerous place. It really is, like, in a lot of ways. When I was growing up, it was at the height of the crack cocaine. There were there were a lot of things that made it very unsafe to grow up there. But at the same time, when I walked through those streets, I knew that I could knock on doors and people had my back. Exactly. I needed a meal. There were other houses that I could go to and get a sandwich. Or if I just needed, like you said, like this connection. And so now it feels like people are having a lot of conversations about what is safe, like unsafe people- mm-hmm not being safe emotionally, not being safe physically. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways you explore safety in the book. Yeah. So in
2: 1998, I went to the first critical resistance conference in Berkeley, California, and I heard Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore And all of these amazing people talking about a world without prisons and policing. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Like a friend of mine who is an immigration attorney now, like said, I should go. I think, I think I had seen um, the documentary Angola and was just kind of like blown away by it. And she was like, you should come to this conference. So I went and I was introduced to abolition in 1998 and I have not looked back. Um, And it was really my kind of like introduction to activism, which is kind of jumping in the deep end of the pool. Um, Like, you know, in 1998, people were not talking about abolition in the same way that they are now. Um, So I remember um, in a So I joined critical resistance as an organizer and a volunteer. And I remember conversations that like questions that we were like, would talk about together about like what safety is and like really like interrogating our idea of what safety is. Um, Because it wasn't just about like, like theoretically, like what do we mean when we're talking about abolition, but like, how do we as human beings who are in this work, in this movement, um, reconceive of safety for ourselves and so part of what I began to just like unpack for myself was about like, Oh, like the things that make me feel safe are um, not having to worry about whether or not I can pay my rent. Um, Knowing that I'm going to have access to food that makes my body feel good. Knowing that um, the people I know who have medical conditions are going to have access to healthcare. Right. Like I was, and you know, free from violence, that seems like, that's like the low bar. I'm like, obviously, like, I don't want to be subject to um, bodily harm. I don't want to be um, in relationships that are abusive. I want to know that uh, if I am in an abusive relationship, that there are people who will help me get out, right, that will help me um, move on in some way, right. And know that, and also understand that You know relationships are complicated there are no good guys and bad guys um the people who we are like the people who we experience um harm and abuse from are usually people who we know right are usually people we're in relationship with so for so many folks like calling the cops is not an option um it's not it's not um financially an option It is not, you know, if like my abusive partner is also like a fantastic father, right? I don't want him locked up, right? So people have these very complicated, not complicated, they have complex relationships with each other. And what I was like invited into was to really interrogate like what is safety, right? It's not like, oh, this person who's doing this bad thing is therefore a bad person and we should just lock them up forever. It was about how do how do we reduce whatever harm is happening and for the person who's experiencing it and then reduce the likelihood that whoever that who who whoever was per- perpetrating the harm is going to keep doing it. And there was just such a tremendous logic in that for me. I was like, "Oh, of course. Of course, like what we want to do, we can't just lock everybody up and keep them there forever." Like, that's dumb. Like, what we want to do is protect people who are experiencing harm, right? Take care of them, help them heal, reduce their exposure to whatever the harm is. And then we want to make sure it doesn't happen again. So the person who's who's perpetrating the harm actually needs to be healed as well. Um. So just, like, like recognizing the, like, human messiness of that and just recognizing that that's just deeply real and again, just as we all come from, like, if we go back far enough, we come from people who lived interdependently. We also come from places where there are no prisons and police. Mm-hmm. Um, that has existed before. And I was like, oh, okay, so we can do that again. Um, and so much of it for me is, is expanding again, like how I think about what it means to not just like believe these things theoretically, but be in um, relationship with the people in my life around them and think about what accountability means. Think about, you know, talk to people about what safety means for them. Um, You know, and some of it is like deeply practical. The fact is, if, you know, if somebody I'm right now, I'm in my bedroom, which is in the back of my house. If I was here by myself and somebody was breaking into my house in the front, right, I'll be dead by the time the cops get here. But I know all of my neighbors, I have all of their phone numbers. If I needed somebody, I could text all of them and be like, y'all go outside and just start yelling, hey, we see you go away, whatever, you know, like those people will actually be there because they I have physical proximity to them. The cops will show up and like investigate my murder. And that doesn't do me no good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true.
2: Thank you. And let me say this too. One of the things that I have learned in all of the research that I did for this was to notice when um, I was uncomfortable with something somebody was sharing with me. And to, instead of shutting down, arguing, which is one of my <laughs> defense mechanisms, um, was to be curious mm-hmm. and to either be like, say more about that, right? Like like ask for more um, information, ask for a deeper um, understanding, right? Or ask for deeper more information so that I could have deeper understanding. Or, and or... Ask myself, right? Like, what am I uncomfortable with? Like, what is this? What am I being activated around for this thing? Is it that I fundamentally disagree with what this person is saying, or like judging them for some experience they had, or is it like my own stuff? What I feel like it's saying about me, or um, or whatever? So, I feel like that in in our relationships with each other um, is so critical because it's so easy for us to react and then be pissed at somebody or react and like cut them off. Um, My therapist who I interviewed for the book and who I talk about in the book, she, uh, she said to me once, she was like, resentment is information for you. And I was like, bitch, shut up. Like, what? Like, I thought resentment was like, when I get to be self righteous, because somebody else is has like messed up and isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And she's like, No, resentment is information for you. And it lets you know, it's like an alarm that goes off in your system that lets you know that a boundary has been crossed. Um, And usually because I have not articulated that boundary, I've not set the boundary. And I feel resentment because I've let that boundary. Like it didn't, I was not clear about it or I've let it be crossed. And I feel like, um, in my relationships, it has totally changed. It has changed like how I interact with my husband. It's changed how I parent. Um, it has changed some of my friendships because I'm like, Oh yeah, I often, I resent this person often. That's because I have crappy boundaries with them and I need to articulate what those boundaries are. And the other thing Shauna, my therapist said is that, um, when you tell people, like telling people what your boundaries are, you're giving them information about you. You're letting them know you and that there's an intimacy in that. And I think often we think of boundaries as a way of pushing people away. And I think it's really a way of revealing who you are um, in a way that builds intimacy.
1: You, I mean, that is one of the tenets of friendship that you give examples of in the book from people who have learned to negotiate those boundaries in some probably ways that we wouldn't think is that where you, that's where you would learn it. Um, you talk yeah. about a woman who is um, practicing BDSM um, and mm-hmm. that, that is where, and and then she taught you the language. Learning about consent, consent. totally.
2: Right. Like so exactly. many, yes. So such like good stuff. I mean, and this is the thing, right? Like I think about um, the people I know who are sex workers and how clear they have to be about boundaries to do the work that they do. Um, same with people who do BDSM. Um, polyamorous folks have got like monogamous folks, like totally beat when it comes to communication about boundaries, about needs and wants about all like dealing with, with like ways in which we get activated and we get jealous or angry or whatever with our partners. Like there, this is what I'm saying. Like communities of folks who are not practiced are not in a mainstream, you know, um, kind of idealized relationship end up having to figure out how to navigate the relationships they are in, in ways that are healthy for people. And like the rest of us can learn from that. Um, yeah, like that, that's just like, it's so good.
1: It was like, so juicy and good to hear. Totally.
2: Them.
1: So reclaiming like, um, you know, our practices of storytelling and, um, our practices of like a time before there was a police through our relationships that we can negotiate our communities and families together. Um, and then being present, with knowing our boundaries, redefining safety, choosing families and mm. setups like unconventional setups that just work better for us than the totally. American. Totally. And I want to shift to talking about the future. So we're Sancofon. We went past present. We we're living. Black people live in three three-dimensional yes. time anyway, right? The Absolutely. Yes. And our children often represent our future. So I wanted to talk about children. I did read the beginning part of the book where you dedicated the book to your children, Sella and Solomon. And throughout the book, you share so many stories of ways, like siblings who decide to co-parent together, mm-hmm. like um, ways that people are raising and negotiating. Uh, what was it called? The mama the mama houses, like the ways yep. that were coming together, like all these creative ways especially out of black queer communities that people are negotiating um, how to raise children. And I wonder if you could talk about the most um, important lessons for all of us around child rearing that we Mm. can learn from the people in the book whose stories that you tell. Um, There were some really beautiful ones. And I, I, one, there was a couple who talks about raising their kids with queer thinking. That was so profound to me. And that, um, yeah, creating these very intentional families that if something happened to them as parents, yes. they had like a bunch of aunties. Totally. that in at a moment's notice. I mean, I think that like
2: one of the, and I will say like, I don't, I don't like, you know, my kids are 10 and 15. So I feel like I started to figure out a lot of this after they were older. Um, but I feel like one of the biggest gifts that we can give kids is, Um, multiple places where they feel home so that it's not just about, you know, living with their parents and like one house and then like, that's where their family is, but that they can. And I feel like black folks do this all the time, right? Like, You may live with your parents during a part of your life, but maybe you spend the summers with your grandparents or your auntie lives in a better school district. So you're with your auntie during the week and then you go to your back to your parents, you know, on the weekends or whatever. Like we have all of these configurations. And I think from like a kind of white supremacist lens, like that looks like instability. But what it really is, is that this child, like a family is like, again, pooling resources to support children and that this this you know these children can find home in multiple places, and I just think about like what a gift that is. Um, I think that you know like the idea that two people can raise a kid by themselves is ridiculous, <laughs> and nobody has taught me more that more than single mothers, um, because my mom did not raise me by herself. Um, so many of the unpartnered women who I who I interview for the book like they have their villages who are not only villages who are not only helping them raise their children, but who they are part of. Right. It's not just about like the village, raising the kids. It's about like, they are in community with each other. Everybody is. Um, So I think that like that, having, having multiple caring adults um, in the life of your children, like my kids totally have chosen family Um, sometimes it's the same people. Sometimes it's different people. Um, I'm like, I know that, you know, part of what I think about as a former sex educator, I'm like, I wanted my kids to have people to go to, to talk about sex when they didn't want to talk to me. Um, I just, I was like, let me assume that even if I think I'm like cool mama, right. That these babies are not going to want to talk to me about sex all the time. So if I'm like, but I want them to have people who I trust, who they feel close to, who they can have those conversations with. So I feel like multiple places they can call home many caring adults. Right. Um, And then I think the other thing is right. Like part of what that does is it gives them models for how, who they can be in the world for what it means to build relationship with people, um, like being part of community, right. Is how you learn to be part of community. Um, I feel like there are ways in which so many of us are like as adults having to figure that out, but there are so many kids that I know who have just like come up in these amazing communities. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna learn from this child over here. Cause they know how to do this. <laughs> like they know how to show up um, in community. Um, so that just feels really important to so just like, not as parents in particular to feel like we're supposed to do all of it ourselves. Um to really make sure we're like bringing people together for our babies.
1: Did you get a chance to talk to any children in your research who were growing up that way, or was it mostly observation? Um, it was, I mean, I, I did not, I did not interview any children.
2: Um, okay. but I was in conversation with people who, and, and their kids sometimes. And, um, I have a community of, of folks where there are a lot of kids, um, so part of it for me was also just being like looking at, you know, knowing their children, like knowing the, the children of the people who I was interviewing. Like, I you know, a lot of people in the book are my friends, um, so yeah. I know their kids. Um, so, no, I didn't actually interview any kids for it, but I definitely observed their kids and know their kids.
1: And one of the things you do is give really good examples and inspiration for how we need to get in each other's parenting business, too. Like for folks who don't have kids or have grown kids or just have the bandwidth to be one of those aunties yes. or, you know, godparents or whatever, to God bless single the
2: aunties people. who don't have no children. Yes. Um, it is, I'm so grateful for, yes, there's a kind of bandwidth that people who do not have kids will have for my children. And you know, something that I didn't realize is, um, and, you know, and, and in retrospect, I was like, obviously, but, you know, so Mariah, who I talked about earlier, like she and she's Stella's auntie, my daughter's auntie. And um, it took me a while to understand that when she would, you know, have Stella over for a sleepover or whatever, like it wasn't it wasn't like, oh, I'm doing Mia a favor I'm like, Oh, she actually loves spending time with my kid. Cause my kid is awesome. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, Oh, like I think of, you know, I think of childcare, right. As like a task or a burden or whatever, um, that I'm, that I sometimes will ask somebody to do. Um, but for people who are in my children's lives, like they're delighted to be able to hang out with my awesome kids because they're super fun and they have a relationship. Um, so I just felt like like that reframe for me as a parent was really important to understand. So it made me feel less um, kind of self-conscious about asking people to step in and like take my kids for a little while. And let me tell you, I cannot wait until this pandemic is over because I am bored of all these people that I live with. And I want my babies to go be with some other people
1: with their folks. That's right. Yes. But I still think there's ways that even in the pandemic that we don't give up our responsibilities. Maybe we double down on them in terms of our friendships and uh, being aunties and still- totally. I know so many people who
2: have like you know regular have regular scheduled like Zoom time with their like friends' kids. Um, my son goes to an outdoor school, so he's actually been able to spend most of the school year like in his community. Um, <laughs> And my daughter got to hug Mariah, who's now fully vaccinated, got to hug her like over the weekend. And it was amazing. It's the first time my daughter's hugged anybody who was not her parents or her brother in more than a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm excited. I'm like, all right, we're going to get these children out of this house. <laughs> and with once all these people are vaccinated, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's been really I think it's been for all of us, it's been really challenging to figure out how to be present for people. Um And there are lots of ways that we have like been creative about doing it. And there's just like, there isn't anything to replace being in each other's presence, like spending time together, like being able to hug people and, you know, snuggle them and all of that stuff. Um, Like it, it it has made me, I think it's made all of us realize how deeply necessary um, that kind of contact is.
1: Well, you brought us back to where we began this conversation about our human need for love. And I wonder if, for the last word, if you could offer some inspiration to folks that are really feeling isolated, Mm. maybe are feeling hopeless, or feeling like, you know, really don't feel that they have friendship, community. Um, And so if we could give them our final, your final word and blessing, that would be amazing.
2: Yes. You know, one of the things that, again, my brilliant therapist, um let me know during a period of time during the pandemic where I was feeling like just deeply overwhelmed. um, She was like, she, she gave me this practice. She said, go lay down on the ground, like the earth, not like the concrete, go lay down on the ground and put your left ear to the ground. And she was just like, let everything that you're holding all your fear, worry, anxiety, loneliness, pour out of you into the earth. Mm. She was like, the earth can hold all of that and not like, it ain't no thing for her. She just composts it. She's like, give it, give it all to her. Just go ahead, pour it all out. And, and in retrospect, I can't remember if it was left ear or right ear. So do whatever feels right to you. And she's like, Once you feel like it's all like the wave of stuff has just like come out of you, turn your other ear to the ground and listen for the message that she has for you. And what happens when you do this, first of all, when you lay down on the earth, you realize how the earth is holding you all the time, right? Like right now, all of you who are listening, like just feel gravity, right? Right like underneath your, if you're sitting like underneath your thighs, under the underside of your chin, like the bottoms of your feet, like the earth is holding all of us. The reason we don't go spinning off into space is because she's holding us. We are always being held by her. She ain't never going to let you go. And there's something that, that reminds me of, which is that we're never alone We might be lonely for people and that's real. We might be lonely for being touched by other human beings. And that is real, but we are, you know, today's earth day. Yes, it is. And I don't know about y'all, but I kind of grew up with an idea of what it meant to care for the earth. That was very much about like, we're going to like, this is kind of paternalistic. Like we're going to take care of this thing and the polar bears and the you know, whatever creatures on it, um, as something that's separate from us. Right. We are like, we have the, we can be conquerors or we can like, you know, take care of the earth and all the creatures. Um, but we've grown up with this idea that like, we're separate from nature and largely that's come from like a kind of colonizing conquering, um, place. Um, and what I've remembered because I felt this as a child is we are nature we're not separate from nature, right? Like we are nature, and that means that the sky, right, like, is of us. Like the air we breathe is, like, is is all over the place. Um, the earth is holding us. The trees are our elders. So for me, when I feel like I'm feeling disconnected, um, large from myself or from people. I remind myself that I am nature. Everything that's out there is inside of me. And I try to find places for me to reconnect. It might be this house plant over here. (laughs) That might be as far as I can get. Um, Or it might be going outside and laying on the ground. Um, It is not it does not make up for the loss of human contact that we've had. But I think it helps some.
1: Thank you, Mia Bird song. What a beautiful and auspicious way to end on this Earth Day of 2021. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for this conversation, for your questions and your attention. And thank, thank- you for being such a thoughtful,
2: present holder of this conversation.
1: Okay, thank you.
2: Be well, everyone.
3: Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle Demedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.